Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Over the last 10 years, Dash Arts has produced more than 100 live Dash cafes packed with performance and conversation. We've always wanted to develop a complementary digital version and the current coronavirus crisis has expedited the process. We've moved online and I conducted our cafe-style conversations across Zoom. Please have patience with occasional tetchy bandwidth, some swearing as some of my guests get a little enthusiastic, and interruptions from my kids. Our first podcast as part of our European series is devoted to the Polish theatre director Tadeusz Kantor, about whom I'd heard a great deal and wanted to learn more, so I picked up the phone to the producer David Gotthard, who'd been involved in bringing Kantor to the UK in the 70s. As part of our cafe series this year, we're, we're, we're creating a, a quite playful Hall of Fame. You know, who would we put in our Artists Hall of Fame? Artists who have perhaps transcended time and place and na- their na- their, their nationalism and their identity to, to, yeah. to, um, to, 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 to exist beyond borders in all sorts of ways. And yeah. I put Cantor on that list. Of course. Uh, would you you would you would put him you would put him down as our sort of as part of our European Hall of Fame? Would you? Of course, of course, one would, because it's it's about our need to be and to have the universal, which in film means Tarkovsky, or in contemporary theatre means Brecht. But it's also to do with opening up doors, which we're still doing, and I think you're doing, whereby. Artists that we haven't known can emerge and show us different things. So in this podcast, I've set out to find out more about Cantor. Helped by David and other people who knew him, Duncan Ward, who filmed him in the 80s in Poland and across Europe, and Nina Watson, who participated in a workshop also in the 80s in France. And those who came to know his work, academic Misha Twitchin and the current director of Krikoteka, Cantor's archive, Natalia Zazeka in Krakow in Poland. Part of his appeal to me as an artist was the fact that Cantor was not a conventional theatre director. I'm particularly interested in non-conventional approaches to theatre making at this strange Covid time. I wanted to find out more about him and why he was so influential across Europe and how he might be able to help us today. Significantly, very fittingly for Dash Arts and its cross-art form approach, Cantor walked across art forms. Duncan explains. Very, very um, organized creatively in terms of all the disciplines, so from music to choreography to sculpture to chiroscora, the lighting, the, the lack of lighting and the black and white aspect of it. Misha expanded on this a bit more for me. It's important uh, to reflect on Cantor's you know, sense that he's talking about not just an art of theatre, but art in the broadest sense of you know relations to uh, installation painting film and so on performance um so that uh, the whole context in which you know we only get sort of the driftwood as it were you know there's this huge ocean um and we're walking along the beach and um you pick up these these fragments that have arrived you know Cantor was not a theatre director in the usual sense, although he did do scenographies for other people's productions, but he didn't include those in his own sort of catalogue raisonné. But he was the animator of the theatre project of the Krakow group of artists. So it was, you know, it was 
it wasn't a professional theatre company. It was a, a group of people who were exploring these, you know, ideas about art in theatre. And this is something that is unique to Cantor. I think the sense that each production, you know, every few years comes with a, a new research agenda. And and the the research agendas are are not just about theatre. They're related to uh, the visual arts. So you can talk about you know he, zero theatre production. I mean, you can which can relate to the whole constellation of um, zero group artists uh, at the time. The impossible theatre. These he gave these names to the manifestos and the associated writings that constellated around a production. Misha piqued my interest. I picked up the phone to Nina Watson, who worked across visual art and theatre, and spent time with him to find out more. This is why Cantor was so unique at the time, because, you know, he saw himself very much as a painter working mm-hmm. in theatre. He said he was a trespasser in the theatre. And so mm-hmm. to have just come through my um, degree and then walk into a working process with a painter was incredibly important to me. I mean, I, to me, that's a very distinct feature. I mean, there are so many extraordinary distinct features about him and his work in this process, but that, that, that sense of being a trespasser, my, my instinct is at the time that, that it, was, it was even more, I mean, it continues to be radical today to say I'm a painter in the theatre, but it felt there, there can't have been, you can't have, in your work and in your work until that point, you can't have come across... Had you come across other artists working like Cantor? It wasn't unusual for me to be within that experience. It was just very enriching. And of course, with Cantor, he was not only a painter working in theatre, he was on stage as a director. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was that, just, that yes. caused absolute consternation. You know, how dare he, you know, a painter and being a director on stage? Cantor's actual presence on stage, rather than just behind the scenes, was a defining characteristic of his work. He put himself and his stories on stage, and they were extraordinary stories that he lived through. It was really Marlena Lakusiak at the Polish Cultural Institute who introduced me to Cantor. I'd heard about him, but I didn't really know enough about him. He was just this extraordinary, prolific artist. He was a painter and a theatre director and a scenographer and a writer, costume designer. He was born in Poland in 1915 and studied fine art in Krakow in the 30s. And during the Nazi occupation of Poland in the Second World War, he formed this experimental independent underground theatre company where he performed these clandestine productions through the war and later staged and mounted art exhibitions where he showed his own work and designed theatre sets and costumes for professional theatres. And in the 50s, he quit the professional art circuit in protest at the communist regime and formed his own group called Quico 2, which was a an attempt to recreate a very experimental avant-garde artist collective from the 30s called Crico Theatre. Um, and he formed this space, Crico 2, and reformed an accompanying art group, the Krakow Art Group, really to, to flourish with him as one of the artists, but leading the way. And they had these big, long research projects which would immerse themselves in these ideas and questions and theatre groups and shows, such as this Theatre of Death, which led to a, the Dead Class 
which came to the UK and David Gotthard talked quite a lot about and um, bringing that work and its impact um, on the UK. He, had, he ran these happenings or actions in galleries in the 60s, which also sound amazing. They were packed with artists kind of involved in the making of these works. One of these famous happenings was the anatomy lesson after Rembrandt in the Foxhall Gallery in Warsaw, which was apparently amazing. He started to travel and he became better known and he lived in Paris for a while and in New York. And it was really in the 80s that his most well-known shows took place in, in Poland, including Via Pola, Via Pola and Let the Artist Die, which Nina and Duncan talked about having seen in rehearsal and in on tour, which was just amazing listening to his stories. He died in um, 1990, just before the premiere of what was his final work, Today is My Birthday, which Krico Theatre staged posthumously. And really, as Poland was emerging from the fall of communism, so his life really just followed this extraordinary arc of history and totally influenced everything. He lived through the heady days of Polish independence between the wars, the horrors of the Second World War, years of communism and its eventual collapse. Duncan explained a little more. Uh, at the time of his death, the Cold War had come to an end and he was very much an artist that was defined by the, the, the subjugation of the Soviet Union and the Germans on the Polish heart and soul. So he encapsulated quite a traumatic background. But with the ending of the Cold War, and a sort of fake liberalization of the former Eastern Bloc, a, a good deal of his context can be lost. David also shared a similar reflection. The great achievement of somebody like Cantor was that he got things done, and he got things done through the most painful of periods, which is what we're not used to being in, we who are post-war. And we got used to that kind of world whereby our heroes, as the Berlin Wall went down, were no longer alive, like Beckett and Tarkovsky and so on and so forth. Where were they to tell us how to think as they all died? Yeah. Um, and uh, again, it became more and more important as one talked about all these people to opt in that they wanted to change art because the language had gone with the Holocaust. This extraordinary 20th century left an indelible mark on his life and work. I called Natalia in Poland to find out more about the relationship between the environment and Cantor's creative process. When I started and we started to talk about doing um, a live event about Danish uh, Cantor, mm -hmm. I was really interested in, in, uh, in him as a remarkable artist and somebody who transcended, in a way, transcended nationalism to become more representative of a kind of European artist because our program is, this program mm -hmm. is part of um, our, our program Europeans where we're trying, you know, we're creating, it's rather tongue-in-cheek, it's rather fun. We're creating a program of, uh, you know, a, like a, a list of artists who we would put in a Hall of Fame from across Europe, and Cantor was definitely on my Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously the, the, the event was was cancelled, and we're now moving online. And the more I, I've learned about Cantor and the more I've been thinking about it over the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot more about how he is really um, an artist for us to 
who's very helpful for us at this time of this time of such uncertainty and where I think conventional theatre and conventional arts are being questioned as we go forward you know what is the new form of of theatre if we can't if we have to be apart from each other if we can't go into public spaces if we can't sit in a traditional theatre and watch traditional work you know what, what how do we manage and how do we cope and obviously Cantor really managed in a difficult environment and he created something extraordinary in very extraordinary circumstances um, and so my my perspective on Cantor has changed as the world has changed mm-hmm. and I'm interested that you've also been th- you know you've also been re-looking at him and his work through this time can you say a little bit more about that yes it's really like like this that he's helping us a lot in these times and uh, we are very lucky I would say in in all you know lucky how can we be in these times but yes let's think now for for a moment for, for in this uh, way so that um, we can work with Cantor and we can re remember the Cantor's uh, difficult circumstances he was working yes and what we are remembering in our exhibition now is for example the whole clandestine theater created by Cantor during Second World too, yeah? For example, if we think of what was also important in his art and what was really interesting and what was really, really his, was, I think, this kind of thinking of the past and memorying the past, yes? Because... When you think of the dead class or Villopole or the Let the Artist Die, all the performances from the Theater of Death, it's somehow transmission of Cantor's memories from the past. Means from where he was born, from what he what he saw as a child, but then what he expected from life, yes. Like he was born in a small city, small village, not city, from small village during before the second during actually the first war and then all these memories of this small village which he saw it multicultural with Jewish and Catholics together uh, with all the background of his of their culture which then in one day was just passed and cut and then in the 70s nobody could remember and even could talk and imagine that we can still remember of all these things then Cantor made the dead class and the Villopole, so he was really using this difficult past or difficult memories. He was like recreating with them the, the theater, creating with them. So yes, we should really take from him for these days and we should use his experiences and uh, read his texts about these difficult moments and we should really try to use his experiences and it could be really helpful in these days. I'm going to come back to the coronavirus conversation later. For the moment, I'm interested in staying with his personal storytelling process. Duncan shared some more reflections. Remind yourself that, that Cantor's work was always mimetic. It was about his memory or reconstructed memory or a way in which for him to re-enliven his memory and relive his memory. So it was his work. And all the players within it were the characters within his mimetic structure. So there's this story of him when his mother is pointing out his father to him. And the father's on parade and uh, he, the mother's holding her son up and he's, he's young. And she's saying, there, that's your father. And he's the captain 
and he's on the horse and he's, you know, got his sword and everything. And so when you then look into, like, for instance, Let the Artist Die and um, Villa Polla, Villa Polla, there's always the captain and the horse. <laughs> so his biography, his autobiography is constantly recycled. I'm fascinated by this. Misha also agrees. I mean, you know, the very distinct things. I mean, in a sense, one of the reasons why perhaps Cantor is so fascinating is that he... I mean, you know, he, he, he put himself on the stage after 1967. And so he's sort of visibly present in the documentary record in a way that other theatre makers aren't necessarily. And I, 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 you know, that probably uh, attracts another kind of level of fascination with, with his image. David talked about this too. First of all, you've got a real show. You had the um, irony that will be forgotten um, as time goes on, which is its star performer was its director, meaning what seemed at first the novelty of having Cantor standing in, in on every performance, of course became a thread that the audience joined in with of reading him as he controlled his company. Well, when you were thinking about how you were going to attract audiences... You know how it was done? Tell me how it was done. It's very was it word of mouth? No, it was one night on Edinburgh's BBC coverage of the festival. Right. And somebody knew that I'd sort of done it for nothing, as it were, that, that nobody paid me to do Cantor or anything. And uh, there's a, of course, there's a whole background involving DeMarco and my being yes. service and what have you. But um, somebody rewarded me by giving me a slot on the, you know, the Edinburgh Nights, as it were, on, on BBC. And Cantor, the extract from Dead Class was so extraordinary, with Cantor talking about it, that the queue started in Chris Broad Hammersmith, where this former uh, studio of Doctor Who for the BBC was being used empty for the first time for the dead class. And what, what do you think it was that attracted so many audiences Vis then? Visual image. Visual image and discipline. Right. It was the rigour with which he created the work, it's but the also just... It's the, it's the rigour and the quality of the images. Uh, uh, and, and, and the fact that he was so not cross-disciplinary, it was so unusual. Well, and the, the uh, curious way in which he created that level of image, imagery by being a visual artist. Right, but right. Instead of it being somebody famous then like Picasso or Miro, um, they were seeing somebody for the first time. Was there something that was deeply appealing about the fact that, 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 he, that Cantor emerged from behind the Iron Curtain? Was there, was there an element of fascination? Well, you get the whole history of what was hidden... Yeah. What was forbidden and therefore had to be helped. In other words, it's not very popular when I say it in Poland now, when they want me to talk about art. But I tell them the truth, which is that I broke my neck almost bringing Dead Class to Edinburgh, not because of art, but because I knew that if I didn't achieve it, they'd have a messed up summer. They'd, they'd have a ruined next six, three or six months, as it were. So the theatre company. I wanted the to give... Yes, they all, the, early on they were friends. I wanted them. The whole point about the old Russia and the old Eastern Europe is you dreamt of their having freedoms that one enjoyed oneself. And, uh, and that was also the motivation for making it happen. And for the audiences? 
for audiences right. to see and and for your and for the and for the audiences who came to see so the audience the were, i think were born out of that night on the bbc it can happen and actually yeah. although it's not important in this discussion the let's see the history of alan yentov territory in the bbc like arena programs or omnibus and the way they covered the arts over a certain period was part of the marketing but it wasn't just the uk audiences who fell for cantor as Duncan explains. I have a video clip of a sort of 30-minute ovation in, in Berlin where the audience are just standing and clapping. And wow. it's, it's, it's actually quite... Uh, um, this is just, you know, the, the, the wall hadn't come down yet, so this must be around about 1987. And it's just the most extraordinary thing that these Germans who... who you know, found in their own way that this artistic community, that's how they honoured it. And it, it had, a, it had it in itself a continuation of the performance because his um, ability to throw, cast a line out into the audience during the course of, of the show and, and, and make those connections, it's, it's, it's like a spider web. By the end of it, everybody has a resonant personal experience bound up in his work. It's an extraordinarily powerful, emotive world he created. And I think it would be the same today if it came across. If his audiences were able to feel an emotional resonance with Cantor, I was intrigued to hear about the experience of working with him as an artist. Nina told me a little bit more about spending time with him in a six-week workshop in the 80s. The course was in French, and Cantor spoke Polish and French, and um, I'm ashamed to say I only, I only speak English. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was quite a challenge. I mean, I was, 30. I was 30 years old. I'm now 61, so, you know, kind of... <laughs> I've had half my life to have that experience um, as a continual nourishment to my creative work. Really? What, what, what are the, I mean, of 30 years on, how, what are the experiences that you take away from it? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, when I go into work, you know, as the activity coordinator, working with um, people living with dementia, I, I'm just so reminded every day of um, Cantor's dead class and, and yeah. just that quality that he was trying to draw out of us as performers because these uh, residents I work with, they are within their own worlds, their own reality and just being and relating with people who are um, so in their moment is, it's just like a continual um, being within the dead class continually. And that's in no way to belittle the people that I work with. It's more to honor them, to say it's a privilege, actually, my work. And how I then relate with them, which is genuine, compassionate and real. Um, and do you think that that's, I mean, it's an it's extraordinary testimony to Cantor that, that the experiences that you gained 30 years ago continue yeah. to yeah. to drive that. It, it, was it so, does it continue to be such a unique experience or was it simply because it was such an extraordinarily unique opportunity for you to spend six weeks in this creative, obviously otherworldly, particularly other linguistically worldly environment? Can you, are you able to separate the two? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was absolutely Cantor's presence, which was the absolute, um, um, it, you know, ingredient. I mean, he was an extraordinary artist to be around, and that really has fueled everything creatively that I've produced since then. So, so can, so can I dig in a bit deeper? He was an extraordinary presence. He kind of was that just was it the magnetic personality was it his attention to detail was it the was it the kind of the focus what was what was it specifically that I think it was his his genuine search for an honesty in the performer which is so exceptionally rare so he was trying to create a presence which is as close to my notion of grace that I've ever Mm. kind of experienced really and it's so hard to define and and um explain it's it's far more um I mean it almost sounds like a religious experience which I suppose in a way was you can't pretend Cantor you can't you can't imitate Cantor you can't to try and do that is an absurdity. Can I um, come back to this kind of beautiful, your beautiful uh, explanation of, 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 of uh, you know, his genuine search for honesty, which is so profoundly yeah. interesting. How, how did he embark on that investigation? Was it a physical, was it a physical investigation or was it a kind of a kind of a kind of more psychological kind of Stanislavski and search for the the kind of individual character motivation what what was his process well his process really was he looked so deeply into the performer he would he he was almost kind of x-ray he was kind of looking so intensely when we presented we were asked he had a door made um a freestanding door and we were asked as the first exercise to simply walk through the door with our own story. And um, we had been working a day, I think, at this. And I was getting more and more nervous. I mean, there were, there were actors, there was a dancer, and there were a few puppeteers. So, you know, and we had extraordinary actors who were doing the 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 course with us and um so I felt slightly intimidated and I can remember over coffee Margarita um came up to me and she said Nina Nina where is your courage and so I sort of taught that and the next day I thought oh bloody hell I've got to walk through that door so mm-hmm. I, I we had different objects around so you know as a puppeteer I I kind of picked up this object and I walked through the door And, you know, was it a bomb I was carrying or was it a pram with a dead baby in it? I mean, you know, so I I just walked on stage and everybody, particularly the actors, were being terribly dramatic and theatrical. And and really, I just, you know, and I thought in when in doubt, stand still, you know, stillness just be still Mm. so I was incredibly focused and concentrated on this object I had in my hand and when Cantor saw that he saw within me the character of the censor 
which had been incredibly important on his artistic journey because in Poland, um, you know, um, the censors interviewed him. I think it was every week. And um, this was quite a vigorous interrogation of, of his process and his art. So within my silence and um, he, he saw that character. So he pulled that from me and it was like with everybody else, really. He kind of watched what we had shown and then he teased and teased and teased further out the characters. Duncan also spent time with him during a similar period in Poland, filming his rehearsals and performances. He shared some amazing footage with us and we'll put a link to the film he made in the show notes for this podcast. I was the, that last wave of people to be drawn into his work, orbit. Um, I went with a chap, a wonderful man called Richard DeMarco, who took a group of artists to meet their counterparts. You hadn't seen his work. I mean, you'd missed out on seeing the work at the um, Riverside Studios or anything in, in, in the UK. I, I had missed out seeing the Riverside Studios stuff, but I had seen the film that had been made in 72 by McCullough and the mm-hmm. Dead Class that he, he did then. So I was mm-hmm. kind of aware of it, but I, it came as a massive surprise when I got to his studio and sat through a rehearsal and everything. It was a beautiful sort of crystallization of how a theatre artist uh, would perform, if you like, because, you know, he's central to the, to the work, so he was within his works as a conductor, if you like. And it was, uh, it, it was really formative in the sense that uh, his tradition he created, if you like, so, you know, because not many theatre directors stay on stage during the course of their work, and not a great many, to my mind, have that level of actor management, if you like, <laughs> they will become what he called them as beer objects, the sort of fusion of props and people. Do you remember what the rehearsal was? Is it still is it still kind of clear in your mind? Uh, the first rehearsal I saw, it was he mm. was working through passages of "Let the Artist Die," because it was just before mm. he started touring that. And you know, just also the titling that "Let the Artist Die" at the time of the growing disconcert. You know, there was a there was a dissent in the Polish intellectual environment, and it was the first cracks within the in that Soviet kind of uh, era. And he was at the vanguard of that, articulating it. But in a way, it's hard for modern day audiences to understand what level of censorship artists of his generation had on them. And so there was constant observation. But because he had a certain notoriety, he was also seen as a cultural product to display the wares of the Soviet power, if you like. So mm. he was allowed out. But with hidden within all that text was this fabulous uh, doublespeak that mm. made up a sort of narrative of the avant-garde and escaped the censorship's understanding. Do you remember, I mean, do you remember that feeling that in the room in Poland when you were there? Do you, I mean, was there, a se- was there a sense that there were people listening and watching? We were definitely followed around by, by there was a certain level of uh, state observation. Uh, but the thing is, I had only recently come from South Africa, and that was during the apartheid mm-hmm. era. And so there was a similar sort of oppression from a state. I actually fell in 
with the Soviet thing quite easy because I recognized it. I could mm. feel the same oppressive, illogical, desensitized, prejudicial um, kind of conceits which, which the authorities uh, would harbor and all the underlings would enact. And Cantor, you know, he, he came from a brief period of Polish autonomy and that was snuffed out by Nazi and Soviet invasions. And so his entire life was lived, lived out with the last vestiges of that autonomy tucked into his early childhood memory, and which was kind of interesting, like Villa Polo, Villa Polo is all about the First World War, and there's a creed accord there for Polish nationalism, if you like. That's an absolutely beautiful way of seeing him, and sort of explaining him, really, that he learnt how to play the system, and in his heart, he still felt free. Well, the Polish people are a, are a much overlooked cultural and intellectual body because they've been so poorly regarded as a nation and easily truncated by virtue of greater powers around them. So their 20th century is the sort of abortion of a politics and uh, the sacrifice of many, many millions of people. And uh, until, I mean, even to this day, I mean, between the Greeks and the Poles, they are the most, they have the biggest complaint against the Germans and the most under valued as well in terms of their European neighbors because they were eclipsed through Soviet behavior and the Greeks through civil war. And, and to get the level of intellectual activity, because, you know, Cantor's just one of several artists there that was hugely influential, Kotowski uh, and so on. But, I mean, he, he, was, he was a monumental character. Duncan painted a very evocative picture of the environment in which Cantor was working. I went back to Natalia to find out more about day-to-day -day life in Poland. As his work evolved in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was he, he was making work um, under under an ongoing experience. It was it was presumably it was continu it continued to be difficult, just difficult in a different way because he he was experiencing censorship and pressures. That, that must have must have impacted on on his process and the work that he was making. Yes, but I can say that he was like he knew that he if he wants to work he has to like take in consideration that he have a spy after him, yeah, uh, because he was traveling and he got several problems with uh, taking a passport or taking the possibility to go uh, abroad. But in somehow he managed. He, he managed. I don't know how he made. I don't know from where he was got the force for that. But yes, it is. It was a difficult time, difficult time for artists. But he was one of the most important important artists in Poland who survived all the difficulties which were connected with the communism and socialism in these days. We have to remember that he, he was like a creator of, of the Krakow group and uh, one of the most important contemporary art, uh, modern uh, art uh, galleries, Krzysztofory Gallery, uh, located in Krakow. And then he was also one of the key artists for the Foxel Gallery in Warsaw. So we are talking about really bad times for the freedom of art, but in somehow the group of artists in Warsaw, in Krakow, they find a way to be independent in their art, because probably the art was giving him power to, 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 to do it, yeah? Because communists, they did not manage to, to close the mouth of the art. It's pretty unbelievable that Cantor managed to continue to make work and that we've got a record of it. Misha reflected. You know, it's discussing, well, what are the after images of Cantor's work, which include, of course, various, 
you know, various documentary films in which he's seen to be working himself up into <laughs> a great sense of outrage with others. I mean, that seemed to have been a cyclical thing of in preparing work, um, the sort of need to um, be quite, quite antagonistic. I found Misha quite careful with his language here. Many of the people I spoke to referenced his behaviour in the rehearsal room. I was interested in probing a bit deeper, so I asked Nina for more detail. Some of the people I've spoken to talk about him as being a, a magnetic force in the rehearsal room and sometimes veering into being, because he was so focused and so on top of every detail. You know, there's an element of, I would say, bullying that, 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 oh, that comes God, across yeah. sometimes. Absolute fucking bastard. And I had right. never experienced anybody being so outrageous. And I mm. saw him being so rude to Margarita. I just saw, and she was so dignified with how she dealt with him. And I just thought, why don't you just tend to fuck off? Because he was so outrageous. He's the only person I've ever seen have a tantrum where both feet leave the floor. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he was absolutely awful. And I thought, if you were a woman, there's no way people would accept that behavior and everyone did everyone just accepted. did anyone question it um there was one dancer who walked out because she just got so fed up of him and um, everyone else tolerated it everyone tolerated and walked around in eggshells there's quite a funny story where i turned up um expecting to go into um rehearsal kind of thing and people were going oh he he stormed off and I said, oh, why is he stormed off? And they said, oh, well, he was doing some painting and the paint wasn't right. So he threw the paint down and stormed off. And I said, oh, right, OK, well, where is everybody? And they said, oh, they're in the cafe around the corner. So I went to the cafe and then there was Cantor and I whacked him on his shoulder and I shouted at him and I went, paint, like I was the censor. And he looked at me really shocked and then he burst into laughter and it broke his anger and he went back to the institute and he started to paint again. Wow, so that's he, an amazing story, Nina. Well, do you, do, you think, do you think that he, do you think therefore, is, did it help you understand him? Do you think that he was sort of expecting everyone to behave like he behaved? Yeah, well, and well, no, no, I just think he was a complete parody of himself and he could laugh at himself and he probably knew he was being outrageous, but you know, that that was his persona. So, and he got away with it, he got away with it. I mean, we did have a really nice relationship. I mean, I, I couldn't understand the word he was saying and he couldn't understand you're <laughs> <laughs> actually working in the theatre space it didn't really matter because you go into a different level of relationship so I think possibly because I knew that that relationship was quite strong I knew that I could go and be as equally as outrageous as he was to him. Duncan was a little more politique in his explanation of his behaviour. It's always an investigation on stage as to what the collective can do as artists and as a group and, and how they can push up against the audience's sort of tolerance 
and, and fascination. And uh, that, he was really good at stirring that up and passing that on to the people that he worked with. How, how can you um, square this idea, Because I've been grappling with it. How, how can you square this circle between this, the, the collective, the, the, the happenings, the participation of the audiences, all of that work that I've understood to be part of his making and his creative process? And yet this sort of, the, the um, fierceness, the kind of controlling element that he seems to have also wielded in the rehearsal and the, the, what you referred to as intolerant. There was something about him being this sort of, creative genius that needs to hold it all to me they're quite um to me I, I find it quite hard to keep those two in perfect balance did it did it make sense to you in the room that he could be both utterly in control and yet enabling of a collective experience you you you've got to contextualize them the the happenings of the 60s and 70s of which he was part of were formative to him in that by the time he became kind of international he had coalesced all that experience into a very dynamic theater event of which he was principal in its direction and control. And the, the sort of tyranny of that was in itself an artistic product. Um, so it's no different to Boyce sitting in a, in a box with a wolf, if you like. You know, there was danger in a sense. He created an atmosphere that danger was prevalent and it was just microcosmic because there was danger on a wider scale outside. So he was a very sensitive individual and uh, it's not to malign him to say he was despotic or tyrannical or anything. It's just that those were the, those were the sort of uh, emotive arcs that needed to take place to shape the thing. And uh, he was a taskmaster at that. You know, he was very, very, he's like an impresario. He reminded me a little bit of like a Marinetti type of character of the Italian futurist, where he spun this fabulous web of, of interest. And the actors and uh, other people that were involved, they all, they, all, they all played along with it. I followed Duncan's chain of thought and went back to Natalia. Do you think that um, it was precisely the this extraordinary tension, difficult, horrific uh, 20th century and its oppressive environment that made the work what it is? I mean, is it possible for us to remove all of this context, this political context from Cantor's work? Or is it absolutely, is his great work absolutely linked to the environment? For me, it's impossible, you know, to see and understand his art without the influence of environment which he was alive. No, I, I would say it's impossible to separate these things. And, and, and do you think then that the lesson for us today is to... Is to the lesson for us from Cantor is to understand... Understand and remember and taking the lessons from history, from the past, yeah? that we have to remember and think of the past and we have to take in consideration that lots of things or lots of answers we can find in the past that we should not let the history repeat yeah in in this way i would uh, i would say i i i i have a mind, in my mind uh, the sentence in polish said by Kantor, o wszystkim zapomnieć i wszystko pamiętać uh, so we have to forget everything to remember everything. 
That's a beautiful sentence. I was thinking a little bit about his process. You know, I I was talking to Nino Watson, who worked with him in a in a workshop in Charleville in uh, in the in the eighties, and she really had an amazing time. But she talked about the interrogation, the deep deep search for honesty, the deep attempt to understand, as you say, the individual in person, and then make that into the work. And I was thinking a little bit about uh, what you're just saying, and obviously our current experience with with the coronavirus and this sort of strange time that we're living through. And I was thinking that one of the experiences from, for, for me from understanding Cantor is to face it. To If we are to be inspired by Cantor, you know, we need to be making work, you know, not just in spite of the situation, but we need to, to sort of face this situation head on. We need to understand it for what it is and continue to make work. I don't think we can be in denial we know we cannot ignore the situation that we're in, but it cannot stop us from making work. That feels to me exactly Cantor's lesson. Yes, I can totally agree. And uh, I think this is the biggest lesson we can take it. Yes, that we have to face it and we have to be in and try to uh, to create. Yes, you are absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's very exciting for me that I have been so changed by this journey into Cantor. For me, I was very interested in the beginning in how much um, he opened people's eyes in Western Europe to this other world in Eastern Europe, that was Central and Eastern Europe was happening. It was almost completely different, experimental, radical, groundbreaking work. And, you know, I think from what it brought to the UK in the, in the, um, in the 70s and 80s was extraordinary and amazing. But, you know, and I was very interested in that. And I'm still interested in that. This journey over the last month of being inside and thinking a little bit about what it is to have everything change so differently for all of us in our artistic work. It's making me understand Cantor differently. differently. I think it's really the most important thing that you've made it, yes, that you've gone to this journey and you uh, you are now one of the Cantor's uh, legacy artists, yeah, in a person who who had the lessons and that this is the most important thing which we do in Krikoteca and so I hope that that I, I don't know if you've ever been in our in Krakow in, 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 in Krikoteca. If not, we are inviting you. And I hope that when we will be open again, you can see and you can, you can experience our new exhibition. When I'd initially planned a live event inspired by Cantor, I'd asked Nina if she might be able to prepare and bring some of her cantorial experience to the room at Rich Mix. When we moved the event online, she kindly adapted it for me on Zoom bringing her role of the censor playfully to this podcast. Enough of this bourgeois shit! Art is for the masses. We have no need of the art from the Western gutters. I demand we stop this podcast! So I hope you enjoyed our discussion. My research into Cantor's really helped me to start to come to terms with the lockdown and the pandemic over the last month and to search for artistic ways to continue to make work and to grow from the experience. A huge thanks again to David, Misha, Nina, Duncan and Natalia for their insights. To Marlena Lukasiak at the Polish Cultural Institute for all her help and to Natalie Beach for her work editing our first Dash Arts podcast proper. We'll post links to the films of Cantor's performances, to the Krikoteka and to Duncan's films in the show notes. 
The team behind the Dash Arts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina and Natalie Beach. Our intro music is from Dancing Fakir by Maruf Majidi. Our theme song is called On the Edge of Your Spring, written by Sasha Relukovic, with music arranged by Andy Hall. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast, or by going to our media section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening. The last thought um, goes to Cantor, where he said, the body will become a mere bag of dirt, but thought, no. Thought cannot be killed, but ideas resurrect. This is my only hope. Thought will resurrect always.